Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. Our reading for today is Colossians 3, 1 through 7. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, non-earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, too, is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Tonight, we're going to begin to explore uh, the doctrine of union with Christ proper. Um, So we're going to actually get into the meat of it, start to get in the meat of it. And there's no more kind of prep lessons, no more broader context, no greasing the skids, talking about sin or why we need a series on this. We're just going to begin our exploration of what it it is and what it means and why it matters and it's so important to us um, and our understanding of Christianity and our walk of following Jesus. So over these next several weeks, we're going to uh, unpack the the nature of our union with Christ from um, the uh, from like the nature of actually we're getting into tonight the nature of it. We're going to unpack the benefits of it, um, the benefits of our union with Christ, like the goods that come with uh, the giver. We're going to look at faith, you know. Um, as the glue or the bonding agent of our union with Christ, like faith is something like we have a hard time thinking about. Like, what is that? Is that something that we kind of conjure up inside and like strengthen and the stronger that our faith is, the better we are at following Jesus. Um, we're going to look at the new, what I'm calling the nutrients of our union, like the food for it, the sacraments of uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're going to look at our union with Christ's body, the church, so the physical body of Christ uh, manifest on earth, which is the church and the importance of our involvement in that. We're going to look at suffering in the day-to-day in our union with Christ. And finally, the last one we're going to cover is uh, look at more goods, uh, more benefits, and that's glorification in Christ. The end game, the trajectory, the telos, um, the purpose of all this and where we're headed and what's, what I'm calling the goal and the guarantee of union with Christ. Um, tonight, however, we need to have uh, a DTR. So DTR, define the relationship. Most of you are familiar with this concept. If you're not, get with the program. I think it came out before I was born. So DTR means define the relationship. And many of you know the frustrations of an ambiguous relationship with no DTR, like uh, for you ladies on here, that boy who's showing you like quite a bit of attention but refuses to ever initiate any substantive conversation or reveal his intentions to you. And that's really annoying. And just for the record, guys, just tell the girl that you like her. Okay. If she says thanks but no thanks, that's fine. You're better for it. Um, Stop tiptoeing. I know you're not supposed to say this anymore, but like man up, maybe. Or vice versa, you know, like there's nothing wrong with a girl telling a guy she likes him, so just tell him. Um, anyways, but I digress. So DTRs are really important, right? That's why there's uh, like a, like Facebook official is a, is a thing. It's a real thing. People 
need some definition to their relationship. So on Facebook, right, you've got all these options. You can be single, you can be in a relationship, you can be engaged, you can be married, you can be in a civil union, in a domestic partnership, in an open relationship, in a it's complicated relationship, separated, divorced, or widowed. Um, I would note that there's ghosting is not an option. So maybe you stop doing that. That's not a healthy way to define the relationship by just appear, disappearing out of somebody's life. Um, so but we, we see this everywhere. Defining like the terms of our relationship is important. Um, articulating our intentions is important. So if we had like a drop-down list to define our relationship with Jesus, our, our union with Jesus, there would be several options, right? But And here's one key thing that you need to hear tonight. They would all be true simultaneously. It's not like you're just choosing for one or choosing one of them. They're, they're all true. Um, so, for example, in that drop-down list, you might see mystical. Um, let me back up just a little bit. If, if you were to open up and dust off a boring old theology book, guys and girls that have thought long and hard about what Scripture teaches about our relationship with God and the nature of that relationship, they're going to use all these terms specifically. So that's why I'm using them. So you might see in this drop-down list, mystical, right? Our union with Christ is a mystery. And uh, Paul uses that language in Ephesians 5 where he likens it to a marriage. It's mysterious like a marriage, like the union in a marriage, right? You might also see spiritual. Now, this is not some kind of urban outfitters, magic, astrology, uh, real rich girl-ish, you know. It's it's not some vague, undefined spirit or energy that's connecting you to God. It's the Holy Spirit. So this is a capital S, the Holy Spirit. And many of us think that the Holy Spirit's job is to make us levitate or talk in really strange languages or uh, tell the future. Um, it's it's not. I don't I don't know how else to put that. It's not. It's not the job of the Holy Spirit. The the, the Holy Spirit's primary job. Is always deflecting. It's always pointing to Jesus. And what its job is within union is to mediate the presence of Christ to you. It's a spiritual, capital S, union. So that's that's why we pray. If you ever hear me pray or others pray, there's a little phrase, by your spirit, will you teach us? Through your word, by your spirit. So when we read the Bible, by his spirit, will you make it alive to us? Um, and that's a frustrating part about being a Christian sometimes, too, because that means it's an invisible union, spiritual, right, for now. Um, and then you might also see personal. You're united to a person, right? Uh, and a person is united to you, the person of Jesus. So it's not a philosophy. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. You don't just assent to a collection of ideas. You embrace a person as a person embraces you. So earlier in the book of Colossians, in verse 27 of chapter 1, there's Christ in you. So there's this personal dynamic to it. But tonight, uh, there's some other important DTRs that would be on that list. But there's one in particular that I want to highlight tonight and focus on tonight. And that's uh, vital. It's vital. Our union with Christ is vital. Now, what do I mean by vital? How can we define that. Think of it this way. When you go in for a doctor's appointment, um, what's the first thing that they check? No matter 
why you're there. You could just be getting a prescription refilled or whatever. Um, the first thing that they always check is your vital signs. Your vital signs. Vital signs are measurements of your body's most basic functions, right? So, so hear this, like it's, it's the ones that keep you alive. Your body temperature, your pulse, your respiration rate, and your blood pressure. I think there's actually some debate on blood pressure, but basically that's what they're checking, right? Those are your vitals. And what do your vitals do? Your vitals indicate just how alive you are. Or no, they put that how dead you are. Like if there's no vital signs, you're dead. If there are vital signs, the stronger they are, the more alive you are. They dictate, they determine how alive you are. Likewise, our union with Christ is vital. It has vitality in the sense that it is life-giving. It is a life-giving relationship. It is um, vital to use the language of Paul in other places in Scripture. It's vital because Christ is our life. He is our life. If you look at John 14, Jesus does not say, I know the way to the truth and the life, right? He doesn't say that I have directions to the way, the truth, and the life. Um, he doesn't say, I know of it. He says, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. He is the life. So union is vital. That's why your union with Christ is indicative of how alive you are. Of how alive you are or how dead you are. So as we kind of talked about last week, in Christ, in Christ, you are alive. In Adam, you are dead. Life and death. Adam and Christ. First Adam, second Adam. The two-man theology that's all throughout the Bible, right? In Christ, you are alive. In Adam, you are dead. Um, let me see if I can unpack this practically for us. Uh, let's, let's reframe the conversation for a second. Move away a bit from the sterile language of alive and dead. Um, and rather than using that wording, let's think about this in terms of personal identity. In terms of personal identity, who we are. Because let's be honest, identity feels like life or death. You can be crowned for your identity and you can be canceled for your identity, right? So identity is this really important part of who we are. And it's it's kind of woven into our existential angst, like identity is important. And so one of the areas and arenas that we see this is that you notice that so many stories, so many books, so many movies are caught up in the search for identity. I want you to think about it for a second, right? So many books, so many movies, so many stories. So from Pinocchio uh, to Beauty and the Beast to Cinderella, from Luke Skywalker and Star Wars to Harry Potter to Frodo Baggins, um, even shout out to my boy, Justin, here for a second. Even the new Matthew McConaughey book, Green Lights, is about our search for identity. I want you to listen quickly to his description of the book. This is McConaughey, quote, This is not a traditional memoir. Yes, I tell stories from the past, but I have no interest in nostalgia, sentimentality, or the retirement most memoirs require. This is not an advice book either. Although I like preachers, I'm not here to preach and tell you what to do. This is an approach book. I am here to share stories, insights, and philosophies 
that can be objectively understood and if you choose subjectively adopted listen by either changing your reality or changing how you see it well one that's a super ambitious goal from a guy who's not historically a writer he's a talented guy nonetheless but you you see the heart of his project here right it's changing your reality changing how you see it how you see yourself your identity this is identity language so here's my wager. This is what I'm proposing tonight. I think that the theme of identity uh, dominates our stories because the search for identity dominates our lives. The search for identity dominates our lives. And the search for identity dominates our lives because a lack of identity destroys our lives. A lack of identity destroys our lives. And so the Apostle Paul here in Colossians is concerned with just that, your identity, and how vital that is for your life. So as always, we're going to talk a bit about the problem. We mentioned this some last week. There's a problem, and the problem is that in our search for identity, we look for it in all the wrong places. We look for the fulfillment of our identity, the realization of our identity in all the wrong places. And why? The reason is because of sin. We mentioned that last week. In Adam, this is one way to think of sin, your will, your ability to choose things, right, is bent towards yourself. And it can only choose self and its appetites. It's curved inward. It's a me-centered reality. That's why it's called, I mean, we see this kind of reinforced through culture everywhere. It's why it's called the iPhone and not the Wii phone, right? We're curved inward. So I want us to look quickly at Paul's language here in verses five through seven. We're going to start in the bottom half of the verse uh, of these verses and then move up. Uh, So listen to five through seven. Uh, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. When you were living in them. Listen to the language of verse seven. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. I know it's like, abstract and strange, but listen to kind of the existential punch of Paul's language. It's not like he's just saying when you were practicing them, but you were in them. Your identity was in them. So you catch the vital language here connected with identity, living in them. That is life in Adam. But the irony is that it is no life at all. It's death, right? And that's why Paul says this kind of Old, strange, religious language. That's why Paul says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In Living in those things is the reason why the wrath of God is coming. So let's change the language again, right? Because wrath is a word that we don't think is cool. Uh, a mean God we don't think is cool. Uh, I don't think God is mean, by the way. Uh, but we can just change the terminology and uh, start a, a, a viral movement. What this is saying is that God deals a death blow to injustice. 
God takes injustice more seriously than we do. As much as we attempt to associate ourselves with the right brands, with the right causes, God cares about it infinitely more than we do and has cared about it eternally more than we have. Okay, so he deals a death blow to injustice, deals a death blow to sin. And so we don't need to get bent out of shape by even language such as sexual immorality, right? Don't get bent out of shape about that and then turn around and hashtag a Me Too tweet. Because the Me Too movement only makes sense. It only makes sense if sexual immorality is a real thing that hurts people. In other words, the way that you express yourself sexually there's a moral trajectory to it that shouldn't just be understood as like, you should be really ashamed if you messed up and do this or if you struggle with this or that. But it is to say that there's a good intention for it to be expressed. And because we are bent inward, we don't know how to express it. I don't know how to express it living the classic white bread, married, two kids, one on the way life, right? Still broken, still marred, still twisted. Sexual immorality hurts people. Um, so in our search for identity, what do we look for? Right, We look for our desires. What are our, our desires? We look for our hungers and we look for our appetites. And the problem is, is that they're all disordered. How many of us can actually say that you haven't found your identity or attempted to find your identity in this list that Paul gives us? How many of you in some capacity have not sought fulfillment through a viewed view of, a skewed view of sexuality? Through struggles with pornography? Through living on the fringes of hookup culture? Whatever it may be. Even thoughts, right? Even thoughts. Objectifying people as you walk down the street. What about impurity? Not just sexually, right? Paul says impurity. This is not like he's just talking about like, you know, do you have your promise ring on? That's garbage, by the way. Um, this is a broad catch-all phrase. Like none of us would claim utter purity. Our, our thoughts and our motives and our actions are impure. Um, yeah, like half of us don't wear deodorant half the time. And I, I know because I meet with you. Um, just, just kidding. Um, right, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Like, so we're at Berkeley, right? And for all its beauty, I mean, Getting back to impurity, Berkeley actually encourages you not to wear deodorant, right? Um, so, but like Berkeley, for all its beauty, and there's so much to celebrate about Berkeley. But one of the downfalls is that it is certainly plagued by an endless passion to subvert the beauty of God's good creation and intention. And it trains you to covet the world and make it your own. It trains you not to steward the world. It trains you to covet the world and to make it your own. Join this group, put in this many hours, make this much money, have this many options after you graduate, you know, climb the corporate ladder to this rung, like, and you own it. It's yours. So in search for our identity, in a word, we go to Adam for life. But in reality, uh, if we can borrow the title from the great Coldplay song, what we get is death and all his friends. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and let yet lose her soul? What does it profit us? So that's the problem. And now the question is, where is 
life found. We, we know, we even talked about it last week and now in this week, we know where death is found. Paul shows us where death is found, but he also shows us where life is found. And life, right, think vital, vitality, right? Life is found in one person. Not one idea, not one prayer, for those of you, who, you know, the sinner's prayer thing, not one prayer, not one altar call, not one philosophy, not one set of moral principles of, of passivity and uh, tolerance. One person, one person. There's not a plurality of options. And on the contrary to popular belief, that's actually a good thing. There's a really interesting TED Talk by a, a professor named Barry Schwartz called The Paradox of Choice in which he argues rather convincingly that the idea that more choices equals more happiness is completely wrong. What it actually does is it, it leads to more discontent and more anxiety because what if you made the wrong choice? So you, you see like the angst that exists around all of us right now trying to determine our selfhood in society. We have all these options supposedly to be free, free com from constraints, uh, and, and coerced conformity to be a certain way. And yet, depression levels and anxiety levels are through the roof. We don't know who we are. We need somebody to tell us who we are. We need a way to walk in. And so this should be a comfort to you, that you have one person to turn to. We're all like Pinocchio. We, we long to be real. If you haven't seen the movie Pinocchio, you should certainly see the movie Pinocchio. It's one of the few movies that Rotten Tomatoes gives a perfect score of 100%. Um, so uh, we long to be real like Pinocchio does. And that's why our lives are dominated by this search for identity, because we know that deep down, we are shadows of what we are truly meant to be. And so instinctively, you don't have to be taught this, instinctively, we long to be alive and we do all sorts of things to be alive, to get it. Good things and bad things. Drinking, sex, careerism, accolades, uh, materialism, like you name it. Um, we do all of these things to forge and form our identity because we want to be alive. But there's only one person that can make you truly alive. And that's why our union with Christ is vital, because Christ is your life. Let's reread verses uh, one through four really quickly, and then I want to end on some, some practical notes. So one through four, let's look at this. Uh, chapter three, verses one through four. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then listen closely. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I want to end with some simple, practical application of what this means for your life. We're going to zoom in just on verses three and four. And what we'll see is that union with Christ does three things at least. But we see three things in this passage. It takes care of your past. It secures you in your present and it preserves you in the future. It takes care of your past. 
it secures you in the present, and it preserves you in the future. So how does it take care of your past? How does it take care of the past that haunts you? Right, look at the first words of verses three, or verse three. For you have died. For you have died. To put this as plainly as I can, this means that the old you is dead. The old Yasmin is dead. The old Christian is dead. The old Ellie is dead. All of your failures, all of your misidentifications, all of your covetousness, all of your licentiousness, all your pride, all your envy, dead. You have died, and all your baggage from personal insecurities, dead. Your scarring and traumatizing upbringing and past relationships, dead. Your fear of the past and what it may do for your present and future, dead. It is all dead. When you wed yourself to Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, right? It's like marriage. When you marry yourself to Christ, he takes all of you and you take all of him. And so Christ takes all of your past and it is dead because it's nailed to the cross in Christ. It is dead. It has no power over you. It is not your identity. It is dead. Two, how does he secure you in the present? Right now, tonight, at large group, how does he secure you right now? Well, let's keep reading. It says, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So though you may feel the lingering effects of the old you that is now dead, though that, that struggle, whatever it may be, still seems to be there. You may feel that its power over you has been definitively crushed. Your search for an identity that dominated your life has ended because nothing is more secure than being hidden with Christ in God. Such interesting language that Paul's using there, hidden. He didn't say like you're hanging out with God. He didn't say you're visiting God. He didn't say like he's got you over for dinner. He didn't say that like, you know, what other, you know, metaphor imagery he could use, like you're hidden. You, you're not seen from the forces of darkness. Like what evil can find you there? What past can find you there? What present can find you there if you are hidden? No one and no thing has the credentials to get past the gate to get to you because you are secure and you're hidden. So when shame creeps up, from what you did last night or what you will do this night. Remember that whether you feel it or not, God's word says that the old you is dead and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. It's secure. All right, lastly, how does he preserve you for the future? 
how does he preserve us for the future? So not only is the old you dead, not only is the new you secure in the present, but the future you is preserved. Not just the 80-year-old Emily, not just the 80-year-old Rachel, not just the 80-year-old Grace, right? The, the eternal you. I want you to notice the logic here that Paul uses. He says, uh, when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. When Christ appears, you will appear instantly. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory, unblemished, unscathed, undefiled, unstoppable, just like Christ, because Christ keeps you. So if you struggle with assurance, if you think like my faith is weak and my life and my moral track record is S-H-I-T, we're podcasting now, so I can't say as much. You know, like if that's like what you're thinking, he preserves you, not your faith. Jesus preserves you. Vital, like life. Christ is your life. He is your good shepherd. No sheep is lost. No future mistake. No future divorce. No loss of a job. No moral failure. No addiction. No imprisonment. No disappointment can separate you from the preserving love of God in Christ. When he appears, we appear. Let that logic sink in. It doesn't say when Christ appears, when he returns, I hope you made it. Like, let me know if you're going to be there. It's kind of like irresistible and your uh, preference is kind of out of the equation. You will appear. You will be preserved. He will sustain you. He will be your strength. He is your good shepherd. Christ is your life. That's why our union with Christ is vital. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you that we can open your word, and that no matter what, your word does not return void. It scatters seeds into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives. So we pray and we trust that by your spirit and our union with you, you would nurture um, and tend to that seed, that it would germinate and grow uh, into fruitful plants and trees united um, in you, um, our true vine. Lord, bless us this night and keep us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.